Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment, and suggest future topics and guests. Today we are joined by Nicole Zhao, Senior Tax Manager at Malone Bailey. Nicole has over 10 years of experience in public accounting. She started her career as an auditor at PwC China, then she earned a master's degree in taxation in California, and afterward moved to Houston, Texas. Her combination of tax and audit work experiences have given her in-depth knowledge in tax compliance and tax accounting. Nicole serves a wide range of mid-market oil and gas clients, including operators, oil field service companies, and oil and gas field equipment manufacturers. Her clients also include multinational companies in real estate, high technology, and the manufacturing industries. Besides regular federal and international tax compliance and tax provision services, Nicole also assists clients in tax planning and due diligence for merger and acquisitions transactions. Nicole, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thank you, Joe Levin, for the introduction, and thank you for having me here. Nicole, before we started the recording, we were talking about Guangzhou, um, a city where I had the, the opportunity to spend a few years and where you're from and where you started your work with PwC. Now you're working in the United States. So I'd like to start things off by asking you for a comparison between the working experience here in the United States as opposed to the work experience in China. Um, Specifically for you as an accountant, how is it different and how is it similar? And more broadly, how easier, difficult was it for you to make that transition from China to the United States? Oh, sure. I would love to share that. So actually, um, there's no significant difference in the working environments between Guangzhou or the United States. Um, probably it's due to my work experience in China was very limited to big four, and I work with those uh, good quality clients, you know, the international banks and professionals. So working at big four, uh, in China, actually, is a very decent job. Um, so for accountants, you know, um, please allow me to share that CPA exam in China is the most difficult exam you could ever find in China. It's even harder to get a um, attorney license in China. So all of the Chinese CPAs in my generation are highly educated people, and we are very well respected by the society, by other people. 
So I do not really feel any significant uh, difference in terms of the working environment between two two countries. Um, if you ask me for any difference I've seen in the public accounting industry, I will say that, you know, uh, in China, among the public accounting firms and CPAs, actually about 80% of the CPAs are working on audit. We are auditors in China, mainly. Uh, in the United States, if you talk to public accounting people, you probably will see more tax people than the audit people. Um, I think this is due to the differences in the lease and complexity of filing tax return in these two countries. Um, not like America, you know, most Chinese people's income tax are finalized on their monthly paychecks. And the, and the employer just take care of all the calculation, withholding, and you do not need to do anything uh, as an employee. Only a small portion of high income Chinese people will need to file the individual tax returns by the end of the year. And um, the income tax law in China is actually quite straightforward. Um, they, they are, I mean, the country is still working on developing a good income tax system um, that can, you know, meet different level of people's needs. So um, at this moment, the, the rule for individuals are still very straightforward. There were not that many uh, areas that you can make an adjustment. So, you know, that leads to a situation where you know, people do not need that many tax people, tax CPA in China, but in America, you know, it's totally different. Everybody, as long as your income is okay, you need to file a tax return, right? So that's the main difference I've ever seen. And to respond to your last question, is it difficult to get used to the new environment in America? I will say not really, at least not for me. Um, Guangzhou is actually one of the biggest cities in China. Um, it's very diversified in population, in culture. And actually, you can find many foreign companies in Guangzhou. Um, so these foreign companies, they came into Guangzhou in 1980s. So that's actually the time when I was born. So um, these foreign companies have brought in Western office culture to, to China. So when we grow up, when we started to work there, we, it's quite easy for us to, you know, get used or adopt the, the, the mixed culture, you know, the Chinese Western culture in those foreign companies. Um, so when I came to America, I did not really have any problem when, when I start to work with people here. Everything just feels similar. I was in Guangzhou a few years ago, and it was my first time there. I spent a lot of time in Hong Kong and Sichuan before that, but had never been to Guangzhou. I was amazed at uh, the experience there. Other than being able to speak Cantonese, which was thrilling to me, I met a guy for lunch in a quarter of the city that looked very European. I had never been to Guangzhou, didn't know anything about Guangzhou's history, and so uh, it was fun to see the cultural influences there. I didn't expect to see that kind of diversity in a city in mainland China. So, Nicole, let's talk about tax and audit work. I think that even as a business lawyer, it took me a while to figure out what accountants do. Between bookkeepers and CPAs, it's kind of hard to figure out what you're actually doing behind the scenes. Can you explain a little bit about the difference between tax and audit work? 
between tax planning and consulting uh, versus tax compliance. And then comment a little bit about how your work is important to companies that are publicly listed. Oh, sure, sure. So tax work is mainly about preparation of tax forms or provide tax advices. We usually help clients to get the work done and we bring in values. Sometimes tax work can be very creative because we always brainstorm about how to, you know, uh, reduce our client's tax burden. So you may not always have the same answer, you know, but on the other hand, all the work is more about inspection. Auditors are hired by the beneficiary of business to review the work done by the company's management. So, um, but when auditors do the inspection, they're actually working with the company's management. So sometimes the relationship could be weak, could be a little bit tough. So at the end of a audit project, you know, the client will get a one-page report which says that, well, the company's financial statements are good or not good. So that's what you get. But you know, uh, for most people, they just feel like that auditor may not bring in that much. Um, value, uh, why the tax people can be very nice. You know, that's the main difference between tax and audit work. And you also mentioned about bookkeepers. And actually, you know, it sounds like bookkeeper is the same as audit or accounting, but actually they are different. Uh, for bookkeepers, their main job is to recall the daily activities of a business um, in the accounting format. But after you have those data, you need to find a way to present it to the financial information users. Sometimes the presentation can be a little bit tricky, you know. So let me give you an example. Uh, you, you, you pay $1,000 to the utility company today. And today is, say, December 31st, 2020, right? So... The question will be like, okay, you, you, you pay cash, um, you have an expense, but is, is this expense a 2020 expense or a 2021 expense? You know, are you paying your utility for January 2021 or actually is a, a, a fee for the past service? So there are always areas like that. Um, that the bookkeeper may not be able to fully adjust. So here we bring in the, you know, the accounting uh, standard, we bring in auditor to make sure that all the presentation of the financial statement will fairly reflect the company's financial position or performance. So that's uh, the difference be between the bookkeeper and the um, audit people. And then, um, you know, at the beginning, I mentioned that for tax, we mainly prepare tax forms or provide tax advice. So um, for tax compliance, we mean that we prepare tax returns for our clients. You know, we make sure that our client will meet the due date, uh, will stay away from any trouble or penalties. You know, we try to find a way to see if we could save some tax for the client. But, but, but the saving from this compliance, um, work will be a little bit limited, you know, but for tax planning and consulting, you know, it's a, um, again, it, it can be very creative, you know, if you do a good tax planning, 
at the beginning of a business, you know, you can save more tax. Another difference will be that, you know, for tax compliance, we always have a due date, you know, for example, March 15, April 15, um, September 15, October 15. These are the typical due dates for tax forms. Uh, however, for tax planning and consulting projects, we usually do not have a hard due date, you know, and the work is not to report anything to the government. The work is mainly to cover a specific subject matter. Um, from that subject matter, again, we try to find a way to, you know, help our client um, optimize their tax structure and, you know, reduce the future tax burden. That's what we do on the tax planning and consulting. And how important is your audit work that you do for companies that are publicly listed? I mean, I no longer practice in the uh, audit area, but basically, you know, um, every public company has to be audited. That's the basic requirement of uh, SEC because all the investors will need to understand, you know, um, the company's financial situation before they can make a informed decision to invest or not invest. So, um, yeah. And also, you know, when we say audit, actually there are public company audit and private audit. And the standard or requirements can be very different. Uh, for private audit, you know, the financial users are just a limited group of people. For example, the shareholder, a small group of shareholder of the company maybe the banks, you know. So um, the the requirement on disclosure will be a little bit uh, easy. However, for public company uh, reporting to the SEC, you know, you usually could see hundreds of pages for every quarterly uh, report or, or, or any report. So... Um, just for the financial part, we need to do lots of disclosure for that company. Um, so it's it's actually a requirement. It's not optional for the public company. And, you know, we need to have a specific group of auditors who, who are very experienced in the public audit um, to, to conduct the work. So would you say that the audit standards are basically consistent around the world or do they differ by country? Overall, it's consistent uh, around the world, but in terms of the details, it can be different. Um, I mean, at the very beginning, they are very similar, but depends on each country's development, you know, more and more issues were discovered, you know, you know, um, for example, in America, we, we actually have lots of good examples or bad examples in the history, you know, um, where the audit standard was not able to, you know, discover any problem, uh, some of the problem of the companies. And then it leads to very big consequence, you know, for example, if you heard about the Enron company, you know, back in 2000. One, you know, that's the biggest thing uh, in the history where, you know, the company tried to disguise some fraud and then under the audit standard at that moment, the auditor, which is the big five uh, accounting firm at the moment, they were not able to 
discover the the issue. Also, I think there is a partner in the audit team that he actually was aware of some situation, but he didn't really disclose it to the public. So because of some problem like this, at that moment, you know, the audit standard was not able to meet the public's needs. So after that case, actually, you know, the PCLB was created, we have socks, and then we try to adjust problem like that. So the process is that, you know, a specific country may, may dis- uh, discover some problems and then they develop more standards or requirement to improve, you know, the, the functionality of the audit standard along with the other standard. So you may see, you know, every country is developing their audit standards, but overall, I think the goal is the same. Nicole, when when talking to other professionals, especially professionals in the service industry, I always find it interesting to learn about their their clients because that can really condition what their work is is like. For example, in our context as lawyers, you could talk to two attorneys, both of whom say they do a specific kind of law, but depending on the kind kind of clients that they're they're working with, the actual work might be very different. So I'd like to ask you uh, about your clients. We know you do work with, with international companies, helping them with their U.S. business operations. What's your typical client like? Um, and what kind of work are you, are you doing uh, for them? Uh, well, one question, for example, that, I, that, I, that I'd be interested in is, based out of your office in, in Houston, would you typically be handling all of the U.S. tax work for a, for a particular client, or would you be working together with colleagues in, in other offices, perhaps, that might be able to, to provide some more regional expertise? Um, tell us about this, please. Oh, sure. I would love to share that. So when we talk about international clients or companies, we firstly look at them. We, we firstly ask whether it's an inbound client or outbound client. Inbound client means that a foreign company would like to, you know, create a subsidiary in the United States. So, you know, they build a company here, we help them with the tax and other issue. Outbound means that a U.S.-based company would like to make investment in a foreign country. So uh, for our firm, our typical practice is to help those inbound um international clients. Um, so again, they are mainly the U.S. company who are owned by foreign entities or individuals. Um, we also serve many uh, U.S. public companies that are holding companies of which the major operation are actually carried out by their foreign subsidiaries. So uh, in another word, these companies, they only have a shell or, or, or parent company in the United States. Everybody else actually live in maybe Asia, in Europe. So this will be another group of our major clients. So for international clients, the major concern is that they may not know what they need to do in order to stay compliant. That's the question, you know, because they are not familiar with the United States business law or tax law or other stuff. So they just do not know if they do something wrong. <laughs> so, but unfortunately, you know, all, I mean, just for tax, I'm just talking about tax, all the failure in international tax reporting 
come with very expensive penalties. So our client really rely on our expertise and knowledge to help them stay in good standings. So we help these clients to navigate the U.S. tax laws. We help to make sure that they timely and appropriately file all the necessary tax returns. And besides the U.S. company's income tax filings, sometimes the business owner and the employee may also need assistance on their personal tax return because these people may actually uh, come from foreign countries, you know. Um, so they may need help with the U.S. personal tax return. Sometimes we even help with the payroll tax return and we provide other consulting service. So we try to be the quarterback of our international clients' tax matters. You mentioned you've had clients all over the world. Can you give us an example of some of those international clients you've worked with in the last month or two? In the last month, I typically work with clients in China, in Malaysia, and also in UK. Yeah, right now, actually, you know, the stock market, the U.S. stock market is actually good. I know that, you know, there are some fluctuations as of this week. But, you know, before this week, um, the U.S. stock market was very strong. And also, it really attract lots of investors worldwide. So right now, it's actually a very popular time for those foreign companies to, you know, um, try to do IPO or, or, or do a reverse merger, and then they could go public in the United States. So in the past one year, even though, you know, during the dynamic, um, the, the business um, acquisition or going public activity is very uh, is kind of low in inside the um domestic companies i would say that it's very actually very active you know internationally so our business actually had grown a lot during 2020 you know just to helping those foreign companies to go public in america it's interesting you said there are a lot of foreign companies that set up a parent holding company in the us is that so that they have an easier time listing on U.S. exchanges to raise capital, or is there another reason? Well, uh, there are mixed reasons, you know, but number one, you know, the United States have a very sophisticated stock exchange market, you know, uh, but sophisticated comes with complexity. Actually, our compliance uh threshold or the bar is very high so for those foreign companies if they want to go public here they need to do very well in their reportings not only the financial but other business information reporting they need to be uh, very transparent about the company and transparency sometimes could be a issue for for some other country it really it's a like a cultural thing, right? Um, like in 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 Asia, you know, people tend to, you know, just uh, they do not share that much, right? But in America, the transparency is the 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 basic requirement. So it's not easy to go public in America, but it's very attractive. It's attractive mainly because that you know the, um. The market is very active here. You know, if you do have a good business, the opportunity for a company to get money 
to get equity uh, infusion in, uh, from the U.S. public company is kind of easy, you know. But at the same time, you know, for those companies, they may not have the same um, ability to get, you know, new equity from the domestic market. That may be one of the reasons why that they choose to go publicly in America rather than just in the home country. That's great. So let's talk about tax issues for foreign companies who want to come to the U.S. to do business. Can you pretend that Fred and I are part of a board of a company in Malaysia that is going to set up operations in the U.S.? What are the kinds of tax issues that we should be concerned about? What's going to happen under the new Biden administration? Can you give us an initial rundown of something that you, how you would explain this to a new client looking for advice about the U.S. market for the first time? Okay, sure. So um, when a Malaysia company try to create a uh, business in the U.S., you know, they have to understand that in the U.S. we have to pay tax if you make money. We Even you do not make money, you need to do tax returns, you know, uh, and disclose all the information. And I mean, this is a common knowledge for every Americans, but, but the key things for international client is that, you know, um, there are a bunch of additional information disclosure requirements and tax uh, returns that they need to fill out um, in time and appropriately. If they fail to do that, you know, the penalty and interest could be very expensive, even you know, at the beginning of the, the business, you know, the business may not make any money. They may be in a lost position, but those penalty could still apply. So it can be a big damage to a new business, um, you know. But again, so the problem is that, you know, the international client may not be familiar with the U.S. tax law. So this is the number one thing that we need to help the client to adjust, you know. And then besides that, you know, as the company grow, you know, besides the federal income tax, we could have state tax issue. Um, so we may need to help the client to understand, you know, um, in order to comply with various state requirements, they need to file additional tax returns. They need to understand, you know, how to allocate the tax among different states, right? And then it's very typical that, you know, the, the parent company in, in the foreign country will have some kind of related party transactions with the U.S. Uh, company. Um, so, for example, the, the home country parent company may be a manufacturing business. They, they, they produce the products and then they ship it to the U.S. company. And the company, U.S. company is the distributor. And then they sell the product to, to United States, Canada, or maybe South America. So, when, when to determine the profit margin in Malaysia and the profit margin in the United States company, it can come with lots of questions because both companies would like the group to, to report more profit in their own country, right? That's the way, that, that's how they get more tax. So, um, we call this topic as transfer pricing. Transfer pricing mainly due to a fair pricing, you know, in those um, 
intercompany transactions. We want to make sure that both countries will be happy with the income reporting in those countries. You know, so basically we have a global uh, model to to guide these transfer pricing policies. So um, what what we look at is that for a intercompany transaction, whether it was done at arm's length or whether the price is fair. So for example, let me give you an example. Let's say that a a a park a a park in uh, Malaysia was uh, produced at the cost of one dollar, right? And then um, when the Malaysia parents sell the product to the U.S. company, you know, and then the U.S. company will sell it to the customer in the United States. Let's say that the final uh, sales price was $20. So we have $19 of profit in total. But how do we allocate this $19 between Malaysia and between the United States? This is a question. So the general guidance is that, okay, if this transaction is not done by these two related party, it's instead done by a third party distributor in the United States, what is the price that the Malaysia manufacturer will sell to the third-party U.S. distributor? And what is the you the profit that the U.S. distributor will be able to realize? You know, in the U.S. market, that is the guidance. If the intercompany transaction um do not you know violate this transfer pricing problem, then they are good. Um, but if they manipulate the profit um profit sharing or if the government one of the governments thinks that the allocation is not fair then they could easily get into trouble so every international clients depends on their industry they may be facing different challenges what we do is that we we inform the client, you know, what needs to be considered, and then we bring in the appropriate professional to help the client stay away with those relations or troubles. So, Nicole, if I can summarize then about transfer pricing, the services you offer when you're dealing with transfer pricing is to look at the worldwide market of what transactions are happening around the world, and then saying there must be an acceptable range of what this part would sell for on the open market, and then making sure the intercompany transfer of that product fits within that range. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, exactly. So do you have clients who come to you and ask you about banking? You know, For instance, how do we bank in the U.S.? What bank should we work with? How do we set up a bank account? You know, Fundamental questions like that for companies that just have no idea what's going on in the U.S. banking world. I usually make reference for clients rather than helping them directly. Um, banking issue has been always an issue. You know, you with your experience working with Chinese company, you probably hear about, you know, um, it's not easy to get money out from China, right? So that's a historical issue and we're still working on that. But I want to say that it's not only about China, you know, even for other countries where the US, United States have good relationship, you can always have banking problems. Sometimes it's not about how to move the money in and out. It can be about, you know, whether you have the credit to optimize the money 
utilization in a specific place. So it really depends on the business and industry. For example, if your business is in the importing or exporting uh, business, you know, you will need to work with a bank that is really established in that area to help you, you know, uh, make sure that the global shipping and cash flow is in a healthy stage. Um, so, and, you know, sometimes it's about currency exchange um, rather than just banking. You know, you may be able to find a better exchange way from a professional um, currency company rather than from a bank, right? So we will... If we get questions like this, you know, we we help our client to meet with the the appropriate professional and, and we hand it over there. So, Nicole, let's turn our attention to what's heading our way. There's a lot of talk of possible changes that, that we might see coming under the new administration. We'd love to hear your insight on what we, we can expect and, in particular, any advice that you might have regarding how to deal with those possible tax changes. Okay, yeah. Um, right now, this is the hottest topic at the tax world. Um, so, I mean, we are facing many challenges nowadays in America. You know, we have lots of uh, COVID-19 related spendings, including medical, you know, uh, you know, including helping those um people with less income to survive, um, to help with unemployment. Um, at the same time, you know, we need to make our stock market strong. We need to increase our inflation rate. So there are lots going on, you know. And for the government, why is spending more money? Part of the money may come with the operation at the Federal Reserve. But at the same time, increase its tax revenue is another way to get revenue for the government, right? So, um, but it's it's challenging as well because, you know, people are losing money at a time. And, you know, some people may be paying income tax in 2019, but now they lost the ability to pay the same level of income tax in 2020 or 2021 because they lost the income, right? Um, so that will impact the tax revenue of the government. Um, also, you know, if we um, increase the tax rates, um, you know, it may hurt the stock market as well. But you all know that when President Biden, when when he's trying to fight against Donald Trump uh, at the election time, he, he said that I'm not going to, you know, reduce the tax. In fact, you will pay more tax if I got elected. That's what President Biden said at the campaign. So I think right now he's, his focus is still on helping people to get away from these COVID-19 impacts. But the next step, will be to, you know, make some changes on the tax law. Um, so we expect that this will happen in the second half of 2021. And right now he actually have a very good uh, setting to make that happen because, you know, we know that the election result is that they basically could control both the Senate and, and um, you know, the House. So, um, 
you know, if he wants to make change to the tax law right now is a very good time. So uh, based on this, you know, the tax planning is very difficult in 2021. Um, we will keep watching the changes on the legislation uh, this year, and then we will help our client to make tax plans that will benefit them for 2021 and the next four to eight years. Um, in terms of strategies, overall, there are two main strategies that, you know, um, each of them will deal with different situations. Um, let me just share more about this. Like in uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, when we heard about business closures, high um, unemployment rates from the media, actually we were happy to see that some business actually grow tremendously. You know, um, for example, you know, during the pandemic, people stopped going to those gyms, uh, public gyms, and then they started to purchase uh, exercise equipment and just exercise at home. So those manufacturers or distributors of exercise equipment actually had a very good year in 2020. So if you are one of those lucky stars, you may want to settle with the IRS at a lower tax rate before the day that the IRS increased the tax rate, right? So, you know, for example, for a C corporation, currently the company will pay 21% of income tax, you know, on its, on its profit. But if Biden increased the tax rate as he proposed originally, the company's income tax rate will be increased from 21% to 28%. So for the company, if they have the option, they would like to pay the tax right now instead of wait until 2022. So in order to make this happen, you know, the company will think about how to accelerate the recognition of income for tax purpose. Um, and at the same time, they will think about how to defer the tax deduction um, from 2021 to 2022. So, um, it's the same for individual. So let me share some uh, specific tools that a business could think about. So for example, if a business, you know, purchase some big fixed assets during 2021, they can choose to take a deduction of the total cost 100% in 2021, and they can choose to do the depreciation or take the deduction over five to seven years beginning from 2021. So if a profitable company is expecting its tax rate will increase in the next couple of years, you know, maybe they would choose to depreciate the asset and take the de deduction over the next five to seven years rather than taking the deduction during 2021. Um, for individuals, you know, uh, if you happen to have a very good year in the stock market during 2020 and 2021, you know, instead of wait until 2022, you may consider to, you know, realize the capital gain for tax purpose in 2021 so that you pay a tax at a lower level than in the future. 
Um, also, for high net worth families, I think the impact is also very significant. Um, I highly recommend that you know high net worth individuals give some serious thoughts on estate planning during 2021. So right now, under the current tax law, and thanks to previous President Donald Trump, he increased the estate tax exemption to 11.5 million per person. But right now with the new administration, uh, we expect that this threshold will go down to about 5 million, 5.5 million or so. So that means, you know, if somebody, you know, pass away in the next couple of years, you know, the estate that is subject to tax will be much more than um, than currently, um, you know, the 11.5 million race. So, um, you know, we will recommend people to work with their estate attorney or CPA to look at their portfolio and see if they could, you know, um, transfer some assets uh, under their personal name to trust so that they could, you know, reduce their overall estate tax. Um, on the other hand, you know, uh, President Biden had proposed to remove the tax basis step up benefit in um, inheritance. So that means, you know, when the father generation passed away, if their family asset or business has appreciated a lot, you know, they, they will need to pay the capital gain tax immediately. Um, so that can be a very big damage to the family business because, you know, the kids' generation, they may not have enough cash to pay the tax. And, you know, that can lead to a bankruptcy situation or they could be forced to, you know, sell off some of their family business. So um, this proposal actually was very aggressive and we don't think that will happen. But again, we need to keep an eye on the legislation uh, change during 2020 and, you know, just work faster um, on the tax planning update. Um, on the other hand, I mentioned there are two strategies, right? So on the other hand, you know, some business actually suffered a lot during uh, 2020 pandemic. Um, they, they may have less income or even had a big loss in 2020. So in this situation, you know, the strategy could go with the other uh, direction. Instead of, you know, uh, moving the profit to future years, we will say that, you know, this loss business should maximize their taxable loss in 2020 because right now uh, we have a temporary carry back rule which says that you know if you have any loss in 2019 and 2020 you can carry it back to 2015 through 2018 19 and then you know you offset your current loss with the prior profit so that you can claim the tax refund from your prior tax return so even though this strategy does not reduce your overall tax burden in the next couple of years, it actually helps the business to get better cash flow right now. So um, this is another way to go. Um, everybody's situation is different. 
I will say that you have to talk to a professional to understand, you know, what was happening in your business and help you to make a plan that really works for you. Nicole, it's been a lot of fun to have you on the show with us today. We're at the point now where we want to ask you for any recommendations of anything you've read or seen or listened to. This can be related to our topic today or something else entirely. I would highly recommend that, you know, uh, the, the monthly newsletter uh, published by my firm, Long Bailey. Um, our newsletter uh, is published monthly and covers accounting, audit, and tax topics. So if you are interested, you are very welcome to visit our website at www.longbailey.com. Um, and then, you know, give me a try and you will be amazed about how much information we share um, every month. Another information sources I use a lot include the IRS Newsroom, um, a website called the taxadvisor.com, and also Journal of Accountancies. So uh, these are very professional tax information sources. You know, unlike those um, editorial material you can see from uh, CNN or, or other media, you know, these are very technical discussions about all the tax law changes or rules, right? So um, I will highly recommend these sources, you know, if you, you are interested in learning more. But one note I want to point out is that, you know, there are specific tax topics that are just too complicated to understand. For example, international tax, right? Um, tax regarding those manufacturers' rules or oil, oil and gas taxation, something like that. So uh, instead of, you know, taking another bachelor degree in tax, you know, I would recommend that you directly talk to an experienced tax accountant. Thank you, Nicole. Fred, what do you have for us today? Well, just just want to follow up very briefly on something that Nicole said, right? I mean, there's a lot of information out there, and certainly there's a lot that you can learn on your on your own. But even though this might sound a bit self-serving, and it is to to to, to, to some degree, be careful, obviously, when when uh, you want to learn more about some accounting issue, some legal issue, some medical issue. Use it as a starting point, and and if if if, it, if you have an actual need yourself, right, as opposed to merely an academic interest, do think carefully about whether you might need to actually talk to just to a professional. Um, in terms of my recommendation, I'm I'm going to go with uh, follow on a, on a theme that we were discussing prior to the to the podcast. Yesterday, I um, attended a, a CLE event that's continuing legal education for 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 those of you who aren't aren't lawyers. And and the topic was uh, making the most out of Microsoft Word for for lawyers or, or something like that. And it's a rare opportunity that you get to earn credit, the, the required credit that you need, and and at the same time learn learn something practical so that was great um that was great to have have that opportunity but it got me thinking about something that i i had i had actually been thinking about for a while which is all these tools that we use on a on a, on a daily basis which are an essential part of our work have so many functionalities have uh, offer so much i mean there's been so much work put into something like word or or 
PowerPoint or Excel for that matter. So it, it really makes sense to to take some time to to learn more about it. And and there are books. I mean, I have my microphone, as a matter of fact, is resting on a on one of the uh, dummies series books on Office, on Microsoft Office. But 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 in addition to all the books, there there is a lot of information out there. There are videos, there are courses that you can take, even uh, free one-hour courses. And it might not make you an expert. It might not teach you everything, but you can at least pick up a little bit. And I, I find that every time I devote five, 10 minutes to it, I, I learn something new. So even though it's not a, a sexy recommendation by by any stretch, and, and I, I certainly struggle with that temptation to focus on things that that, are, that appear more interesting, you know, read that additional magazine or newspaper article, uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and recommend that you take some time to, to learn about the tools that you're using, especially if you are, as many of us are, professionals uh, for whom document creation is, is an essential part of, of, of what we do. What about you, Jonathan? Hopefully you have something a little more scintillating for our listeners today. I just want to add that this podcast episode is not sponsored by Microsoft, in case you're wondering, (laughs) although maybe we should reach out to Microsoft to see if they want to sponsor us. My recommendation comes thanks to Fred, who pointed this article to me. It's an article from The Guardian, and the title is, We're Trying to Recreate the Lives We Had, the Somali Migrants Who Became Maine Farmers. And Maine, uh, by Maine, I mean the state of Maine, the U.S. state of Maine in the northeast corner of the country. I used to practice law in Maine at my first law firm. And so this resonated with me because Maine is what we like to call the oldest and whitest state in the United States. And they have welcomed a decent immigrant population from around the world. So this article focuses on, I think, 3,000 strong migrant group from Somalia. And it's very interesting. It continues the conversation of how we help migrants settle when they come to a new country. How do we welcome them? How do we help them integrate? How do we provide opportunities for them to provide for themselves? Because I think it's a natural human condition to appreciate a handout when we're in a time of crisis. But everybody wants to be able to pull their own weight, carry their own buckets when they get their feet under them. And I would say that this includes all of us uh, that are in any country that, that had immigrant ancestors. So I think this really resonated for me because I love seeing what's going on in Maine. I love that we as uh, as people in the world are trying to help those who have been disproportionately affected by violence and other bad situations around the world. You know, that there are proper channels for immigration, help them find new homes, set up a community, uh, have a sense of togetherness that they used to have in their, in their homeland and where they can continue their cultural traditions. And this communal farming, of course, is a very interesting thing as well because they had to struggle to find a place where they could really call their own and uh, it was hard for them to uh, dealing with the way farmland is being consolidated in the United States. It was really hard for them to find a place where they could be settled and could have uh, could have land that they could lease. So now, uh, with the help of a nonprofit in New England, they've been able to get on this land, and now they farm it together as stewards of the land, not as owners, but as as stewards. So that's my recommendation for this week. And with that, we want to thank you, Nicole, for being with us, and hope that we can catch up with you again sometime. Thank you again for having me here. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams. Music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. (laughs) 